0: Hello again. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is our podcast number five from Local 10 WPLG here in Miami. And we're going to talk about weather and hurricanes. I'm here with my partner, meteorologist Luke Doris. Luke, welcome back. Well, thank you, sir. And we're going to have on the uh, program today Marty Centerfit, who's the sort of essentially, I'm going to say, the director of emergency management in Monroe County, which is the Florida Keys. We're going to talk about Irma and the incredible events uh, there during the hurricane and the myriad of issues that he and the keys faced at that time and and continue to face and how plans and procedures have changed since then uh, we'll get to marty in just a second i'm going to have pinned down on exactly what what his title is but anyway i, th- I think of marty as the director of emergency management we're recording uh, this podcast on july 18th 2018 so if you're listening at some point in the future You've got to tune in to local 10, or check the Max Tracker app, or the local 10 weather app, or local10.com for any kind of current information. And this podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Visit them at miccosukee.com, and thanks to them for their help in, in putting things together. All right, Luke, um, I saw you on the. Computers a moment ago, uh, let's just talk about the tropics for a, a brief second here.
1: Yeah, we've gone quiet again, haven't we? After <laughs> that flare-up that we'd had uh, earlier, just last week, things were, were rocking and rolling a little bit where we had Chris, and Beryl came back to life, mm. and now things have gone settled again, so nice and quiet.
0: Yeah, lots of, lots of dust, and the way the high pressure is aligned over the Atlantic, the core of the dust is staying south of us. Mm. Right, they. I mean, it's we're having some dust here, but in the atmosphere, it's a little milky in southeast Florida and southern part in of the state. Houston, but it's over. It's the high is aligned a so that it's across the Caribbean, thick across the Caribbean. The skies are just milky white there, and and they may even be having some dust actually falling out of the sky. It's so thick in in kind of pulses, and uh, then it's oriented toward Texas, Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. more so than here.
1: There's no denying it when you look at it on the satellite. It is bright, right in your face. You don't need to have little arrows point out where the dust is. I mean, if you look at the uh, the visible satellite imagery, it's it's impressive. It so. is. while well, we see it now with the new GOES-16 yeah. satellite and the true
0: color uh, representation there. It's uh, it's really quite stunning. As a matter of fact, I was talking yesterday, exchanging uh, emails with Jason Dunyon, who's an expert on on these things, on Sahara dust at the Hurricane Research Division over Virginia Key. And uh, the the one of the points of speculation was, are we more aware of the dust now because of GOES-16, and because we can see it yeah. on the satellite so clearly? You know, it used to be milky white on the black and white visible satellite, but now you actually can see the orange.
1: Yeah. Uh, how common, Brian, we, you know, if you look at the surface high, uh, that's up around the azores it's bouncing 1033 1036 millibars a strong surface high so the mid-level high uh how how powerful is that one compared to normal for this time of year yeah it's it's above normal i mean we,
0: we're in an nao positive situation where high pressure is stronger than normal over the atlantic and that has tended to push the sort of storm track or in this case the dust track Farther south, and it's keeping it south of us. It's also what's making it so darn hot here yeah. in uh, South Florida, because we're n- we're really near the center of the high, as opposed to having the high be to our north. And we get a southeast sea breeze, and we get a, a strong south—not just a sea breeze, but a, a flow off of the cooler Atlantic mm-hmm. uh, out farther east.
1: Feeling it today, Ooh, Ooh, and I the know. dew points are cranked too. It is I was out running swampy. yesterday
0: morning. It was uh, it was pretty. Uh, Stunning. So the uh, the issue with the tropics right now is, uh, from an El Nino standpoint, the El Nino is almost exactly neutral, and it's been trending more toward neutral than toward an El Nino that we were kind of thinking uh, was more likely. But uh, the National Weather Service, or I guess NOAA actually, is still predicting 65% chance of an El Nino in the fall, two-thirds of a chance if we were to get that generally. That would indicate a quicker end of the hurricane season, but there is n- not, it does not, it's not trending that way in the short term uh, at the very least.
1: So, even though it's not trending that way right now, the forecast is calling for it still, and the chances have gone up versus previous forecasts, right? So, it would have to, it being the Pacific, is going to have to warm. Pretty quickly, right? And then and then hang out in a big
0: hurry if they're going to get an El Nino, which requires three months above a half a degree yeah. uh, Celsius. It's point two degrees above normal now. So and trending down. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, that's the that's the current forecast as it is right now. It's we'll just call it a neutral, but the Atlantic is still on the cool side. Okay, let's uh, let's bring in Marty Centerfit, who's the All right, Marty, you're going to have to tell me what exactly is your title. But in any case, Marty is in charge of emergency preparations and emergency management in the Florida Keys in Monroe uh, County. Um, Marty, welcome to our podcast.
2: Well, thank you for having me. And me, like many government employees, tend to have multiple hats I wear. But but really, I am the director of emergency management for Monroe County. So I think that's the simplest title for all of us. Oh,
0: good. Okay. Well, I know you had a long career in Jacksonville and came to the Keys in 2016. And as I remember our conversation, uh, you know, you had some time to get yourself going, but certainly not enough time to get ready for uh, Irma. So, w- would you tell us about Monroe County and what you saw and found and how it was different from Jacksonville? And, and I guess the, the bottom line question are your responsibilities really? You know, 99% in the Keys, or do you have any responsibilities on the mainland as well?
2: Sure. So, you know, coming from a large urban area like Jacksonville uh, that, that of course, has a large population but also has a large amount of resources, has a large amount of access points, whether it's I-10 or I-95, there's so many ways you can get into Jacksonville and and so when you come from an area like that with access and with large resources and you come to the florida keys it really is a a dynamic change of course one way in one way out to the populated portion of the keys uh, on us1 and then of course um, we have far fewer resources Uh, you know we don't have the conceptual neighboring counties that every other county has Uh, you know our closest help is miami-dade and and as we found here just a few months ago with the wildfires, it can be three hours for Miami to get to you to help you. So uh, we're, we're isolated, uh, one way in, one way out, and we don't have near as many resources as a larger community. As you bring up, of course, the largest portion of Monroe County land-wise is, the Flor- is in the Florida Everglades. But we have less than a dozen residents that live on the mainland. And so when we talk about Monroe County and the Florida Keys during hurricanes, we tend to focus on that 99 percent population that lives on the islands.
1: Marty, I was in the lower keys. It was earlier this year we did a hurricane special specifically for Hurricane Irma and how the center of circulation made landfall uh, over Cudjo. And we went down to see, assess and see what the damage was like, what the recovery was like. Uh, there was obviously a lot of progress. One of the businesses that one of the business owners that we met with, uh, he lost pretty much all of his kayak business, and he had some uh, lodges and things like that. He was starting to recover. We'd seen some houses uh, on Big Pine that had just wrapped up their completion. So, uh, anyway, where do things stand in Big Pine and also, Joe, the surrounding keys, and what are the biggest challenges ahead of you?
2: Well, you know, here we are now. Uh, just over 10 months past the storm and and you've seen incredible progress on one hand so I've got to be positive there's been great progress uh, in in many areas you're really seeing the keys come back we're definitely open for business Uh, the challenge we run into has been literally uh, the limitation on the number of contractors that we have in the community Uh, it was actually Just earlier today it was a point of conversation in our county commission meeting about how we've got several commissioners that are still waiting on trying to secure roofers to do to do repairs to the house Um, we still have a lot of blue roofs out there it's simply a reality that the hurricane created far more work than we had capacity to do on a short-term basis and and I think we're still going to be doing repairs for Hurricane Irma well into 2019
0: Marty, uh, I know that you guys at the Emergency Operations Center in Marathon, which is uh, in the Middle Keys, and it is where Irma was heading and and really kind of missed you just by a little bit, uh, went through quite uh, a memorable and frightening time there. Uh, Describe what it was like as you were in Marathon and, and seeing the storm coming and thinking about what your options were and the elevation of that Emergency Operations Center and uh, everything that happened as Category 4 Irma was coming your way.
2: Well, exactly. You know, as, as it was approaching us, as it was, you know, 72 hours out, 48 hours out, we were still at that time looking at a Category 5 storm. And and knowing that when you're 24, 48 hours out from the storm, even a wobble of 25 miles in either direction really brackets a large portion of, of the Florida Keys. And so we watched it close. We knew that we were in a building that wasn't really designed for hurricanes, and we knew that um, even the slightest storm surge would, would literally destroy every vehicle in our parking lot, and, and the direct hit could be you know, absolutely devastating to us. So as the storm got closer, we knew it was going to be a perpendicular strike to us, and I remember, you know, explaining to our staff that the storm was moving at about 15 miles an hour and we could drive at 60 miles an hour. So we were just going to patiently wait for the storm to commit itself one way or the other, and then we were going to drive out of the way. And that's basically what we did. Um, by Friday afternoon, we, we really felt strong that the storm was going to be an impact somewhere between Marathon, which is the middle of the Keys, down to Key West, which is the southernmost part of the Keys, and so by Friday afternoon, when we knew that it was going to be a Lower Keys impact somewhere, we made the decision to actually go to the north end of the Florida Keys to a community called Ocean Reef, that was kind enough to uh, to put us up for uh, two nights. And so we rode the storm out on the very north side of the county, and uh, you know we still felt the the edge effects, that Category One effects, and that really kept our people safe. But of course the challenge is, is anytime you you Move out of an EOC, we call that a continuity of operations or a COOP plan. Anytime you have to activate that plan, it's a disruption. It pulls you out of your normal working environment and it just creates that many more challenges when you come back in post storm.
0: Yeah, I was going to uh, say we were
2: able to get back in.
0: I was going to say, Marty, the the uh, just operating the opera the emergency operations center with all your communications equipment and and the facilities that you have there, uh, having to go to Ocean Reef. Did you feel? Hamstrung, or did you feel like, you know, you could do everything that could be done and there wasn't really a whole lot you could do until the storm was over?
2: You know, Brian, we really found out, and we had no way of knowing this when we moved, but we really found out that um, moving to Ocean Reef was a blessing uh, because what we found is that Marathon, where our EOC is, they lost all of their fiber connections by middle of afternoon Saturday, basically uh, 18 hours before impact where we were an ocean reef we never lost our cell phone coverage hmm. and so we were able to continue to communicate even throughout the storm and it wasn't until we drove back into the central part of the, the keys that we went uh and lost communication so moving did help us in the fact that we were able to continue uh, co- communication to the state to fema and to all of our partners but of course when we came back in then we had to reestablish, set back up and, uh, and come into a community that had gone dark in the communication world, and that created challenges for us. Uh, but, you know, that's why we pre-planned so much. Uh, the Tallahassee and even Washington knew very clearly what our needs were, what our objectives were, and what our plan was. And so even during that time when they lost communication with us, they were able to just kind of go into an autopilot because we had, we had conversed so many times, they knew exactly what we needed. And we knew the aid was coming. We knew the resources were on the road. It was just a matter of engaging them and making sure they got to the right people.
1: Talking about the evacuation as a whole, you know, it it seemed like there was a 70, 75 percent evacuation rate. Something like that is what we heard when we were uh, in the lower keys for that hurricane special. Uh, So that pretty high number, at least it sounds like on paper, would you characterize the evacuation as a success, and still there were a lot of people that stayed. I don't know, was it hundreds or thousands? There was a lot of people still that didn't evacuate, but what do you think about the evacuation as a whole?
2: You know, as as a new emergency manager coming in in the summer of 2016, I asked my predecessors, uh, several layers of predecessors, you know, what they thought realistic evacuation numbers would be And I was, I was being told up and down the keys that if I could get anywhere close to 50% evacuation, it would be incredible. It would be uh, surprising. And so for us to actually get 75 to 80% was just a complete shock, a very pleasant shock. Um, It was far greater than we expected. Now that, of course, that still means we had 15,000 or more people that stayed behind and ignored the evacuation order, but. But an 85 to 90% evacuation was an extreme success for us and exceeded our expectations. And, and with that, um, you know, I think that, you know, Irma was kind enough to very clearly establish herself seven, eight, nine days out. We knew we had a major storm. The uh, models and everybody that was talking to us were all in. Um, they were, there was consensus there that it was coming. And so you have the major storm, a Category 5, coming at you. It's well-established. It's well-set up. And then we have Hurricane Harvey, which is just giving everybody just incredible, vivid pictures of what a hurricane looks like to a city. And so those combined effects, I think, really um, really tied in and got that, that number as high as it was.
0: Marty, uh, as you said, we had uh, over a week to watch Irma coming toward Florida, and everybody knew. There was nobody in Florida that didn't know that there was a hurricane threat. Uh, But when we talk about the keys and we talk about hurricanes, we uh, always think about the 1935 great Labor Day hurricane that hit just north of Marathon, which didn't, uh, if it were to happen again today, it would not give us a week's warning. It it would be a a tropical storm and a Category 1 hurricane, uh, barely a hurricane, 36 hours before it hits as a uh, top-end Category 5, uh, so you, you just wouldn't have the setup that uh, I think contributed That's to right. many people's mentality. Is that what you guys you know, fear most? Isn't that, is that the storm that you think about, or is there another variety of storm that really, really sets you off?
2: No, Brian, I, I think you're absolutely right. There were a lot of dynamics that, that uh, stacked in our favor for Irma for the evacuation But those same dynamics could have gone the other way. If you take a storm like the 35 storm, or even what Harvey did to Texas, and, you know, it's a tropical storm, a day and a half before it hits you, and then it escalates, Um, that scares me, because I think that would greatly reduce the number of people of leaving. Uh, Because there's not any hype going on, the Harvey effect, I think that would bring the the number down. A third thing is if we get one of those issues where the storm – might hit us or might not one of those where the lions or the 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 um, spaghetti models aren't all in agreement i think that would bring down the evacuation and so there's a lot of dynamics that could go into this where you know my fear is instead of having a 75 percent evacuation we may only have a 25 or 30 percent evacuation and then the life toll could be incredible the, the death toll i should say could be incredible and so I recognize that we were fortunate in many, many levels with Irma, but now it just becomes that much more important for, for us in the county and, and our partners like you and your station to get people to understand that, that we have to take evacuation serious, even if, even if all of the dynamics don't line up perfectly. Uh, it's, the near, it's the near misses or the close wobbles that could really hurt us. So- and my fear is, and I think we saw this with Harvey, People, when the storm is still a tropical storm, 48 hours out, it's hard to get them to take it serious.
0: So, Marty, you think as a result of Irma now, are people more likely or less likely to evacuate the next time there's a storm threat? Because a lot of people said, well, I evacuated, uh, but it was so hard getting back, I really don't want to do that again. But other people uh, probably feel just the opposite they stayed and, and they don't want to ever go through that again. so uh, what's your sense of folks in the keys and how they feel since Irma?
2: Well you did touch on it you know people that stayed swear they'll, the, the people that stayed and took a direct hit swear they'll never stay again but the people who left or those who didn't take a direct hit say they'll stay but you did touch on a key point many of the people I've talked to have told me that the biggest obstacle to evacuation, is how long it takes to get back into the county. And many of them are threatening to not leave next time. So what we've done in the county is we've taken that to heart. You know, I recognize my job is to remove every obstacle possible that's going to hurt us on the evacuation. And so we've, we've really looked at uh, revitalizing and, and reorganizing how we do disaster reentry. And in a nutshell, the, the reason we keep people out is because it's unsafe and we don't have the ability to support them. And so what we've done is we've reached out to the community and asked them to meet us in the middle and told them, look, if you'll be part of the community emergency response team training or CERT training that FEMA puts on, which will allow us to teach you how to be safe and how to be prepared, if you will take this training, we will give you a reentry placard that will get you in much, much quicker. The community has given us an outstanding uh, support on this, uh, and they've, they've stepped right up. We've got literally people in waiting lines to take this training, and I think that's where the solution lies. It gives us the opportunity as a county to train with our, our uh, community. Uh, you know, They come into classes. We teach them about preparedness. We teach them about safety. We teach them about what they need to be coming back in to do. And at the same time, it gets filmed back in quicker, which has a totally uh, totally separate dynamic in the fact that we did also discover in the Florida Keys, I discovered, every day that goes by that a building stays closed up after the storm, the damage continues. Every one of our buildings gets some sort of moisture or water in them. And if if you take a building, you close it up with shutters, you cut off the power, and you leave it closed up in the Florida heat for six, seven, eight days, the mold and mildew can do far more damage than the storm did. And so by getting people back in even quicker, they can open up their houses, dry their houses out, and they can stop the damage that's occurring. So I think we've really hit on something here that's going to be uh, quite productive. The community is going to be more engaged. They're willing to take the training, they get in quicker, they stop that damage. And so all of this working together in in combination I think is going to give us a much better product in the future.
1: One of the hardest parts of if not the greatest challenge of a hurricane bearing down is to communicate the impact, the threat that it poses to people. And as a broadcaster, that's you know, that's our greatest challenge is try to get that information out in a way that people can digest. So from an emergency management perspective, do you think people understand all these watches and warnings that come their way? I mean, they'll have uh, hurricane watches, hurricane warnings. We now have the, trop- or the uh, storm surge watches and warnings. Do people understand that? And do they also understand the concept of a storm surge period?
2: You know, I, I think the, the warnings, the watches and warnings in and of themselves is not what educates the community. I really think it's, it's stations like yours. I think it's the media that has done such an incredible job at, at giving, being able to visualize, give graphical representation to people as to what the outcomes are. So I think, I think the products that you put out are huge. I think, secondly, the fact that we no longer just send a teletype like they did in 1935 and put it in a newspaper, but we really have – coverage, and as the storm gets closer, it turns into 24-hour coverage that's, that's constantly sending the messages to our community. And then finally, and, and Brian, you're the world's greatest example of this, we've got s- such great partners in the media that have been around for so long. People remember they they know you, they respect you, you've got that, that credibility in the community. And so you know, even though it may have been 25 years ago that you were talking about um, then Andrew, now 25 years later, it's still the same team giving the message, and that's powerful. People people trust uh, trust you, they have faith in you, and when you look at them and give them that message in the way that you do, it, it's profound. And I I think that's you know that's got to really go down on the list of another reason why we had. 75% evacuation. I think it, the media deserves uh, a lot of credit in that area.
0: I think your point is good, Marty. It's the tone of the message as much as it is. In fact, uh, I've always said more than it is the actual words. And if you have a consistent tone that's appropriate to the threat, that goes a long way in terms of communication. Uh, one more uh, kind of question I think that lingers for the Florida Keys is. You have the area around Big Pine and the, the part that was really devastated by Irma. That uh, I think it's fair to say has been changed uh, forever. And you have issues about uh, how they're going to be rebuilt, but rebuilds in a way that that people that uh, do the jobs on Key West and and keep the the businesses operating and you know there are good solid Keys people can live. Uh, how, did, how does the Keys come back, uh, and, and what's the, the, the difference in the, the Keys of the future uh, compared to the, the kind of easy lifestyle that so many people came to know and love uh, all those years?
2: Well, I'll tell you, that that literally is, has been a point of conversation even today. It, it's still going on. Number one is partnerships. Uh, we formed a long-term recovery group here in the Keys, and we have over 40 nonprofit agencies that have come forward, and they're really helping us step by step through this. From, from there, there's so many I don't even want to start naming them, but from organizations that do housing, organizations that do human care and relief, and and unmet needs assessments, that tied into the county, where the county is really working on workforce housing solutions. How are we going to get things prepared? Uh, Just earlier today, the the sheriff rolled out an idea of using some county property that's next to the county jail to build workforce housing for law enforcement. Uh, He's having a real challenge hiring people to come into the Florida Keys because of the cost of living. And so all of our employers all across the county are finding creative solutions to create workforce housing, use that as a benefit or a perk to get in so that you can afford to work here and thereby come part of the solution. And we're seeing that across the county. Now we even talked today about taking some vacant property that we have in the county and basically leasing it back to our nonprofits, so that they can set up temporary RV parks to bring the workers in that can build the buildings, which can then solve the problems for us. But as we look forward to the future, uh, the, the the face of the Florida Keys is changing Our properties are going to be elevated uh, we do know that modern building code makes a difference I've seen buildings that were built within the last year uh, uh, one or two years before the storm that that took a category 3 category 4 impact and only had uh, cosmetic damage so I feel very comfortable that we can build to the new requirements Uh I think you're going to see a much newer Florida Keys than this has said Ben. done, which a newer Keys means a safer Florida Keys, and I think that's always a positive point.
0: All right, Marty Centerfit, uh, Emergency Management Director in the Florida Keys. Thanks so much for being with us, and uh, I know that you guys have a tremendous amount of work to do, and and the innovations in the Florida Keys I think will be just a, a guide for how people deal with very difficult uh, hurricane locations all around uh, the hurricane coast. Marty, thanks a lot. Thank you, gentlemen. All right, take care. Uh, so uh, the keys are tough. The keys have always been tough, and and the keys have actually been quite lucky, even with Irma. The fact that Irma weakened so significantly uh, in terms of the – not in terms of the peak wind so much, but in terms of the distribution of the Category 4 winds. It was only Category 4 in a very narrow Corridor missed the population center in Key West. The worst of the winds, maybe a Category One, in Key West. Uh, it's a, it's a tough place, but it's a it's it's you know one of the most fascinating places that there is, of course.
1: Yeah. So the. Uh, the category four winds it was just on the right side of the eye is that what happened because you talked before yes. about how that the eye wall eroded you you've told me about this so
0: this is the back side of the eyewall eroded but the mm-hmm. front side was was very solid but the storm was in a weakening phase there was dry air coming into it uh, there's a little bit of shear over top of it and that accounted for the the back end of the donut eroding mm-hmm. so as I said, it was a croissant, not a donut. Yeah. right? Uh, so the, yes, on the right side, just to the uh, up the keys, you know, uh, we call it up to the north. It's actually more to the east of Kajoki, Uh and uh, that's where the worst of it, uh, worst of the winds were. But in a very narrow swath of Category Four, and a little bigger swath of Category Three. But thing was, the Key West, the Population Center, and the Lower Keys, Stock Island, and, and all down there, was on the so-called weak side of the storm.
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, you were talking about how the Keys residents are really tough. That's one mm-hmm. thing that from that special when we went down and, and visited with some residents was how much they helped each other. Uh, I mean, everybody was had each other's backs. Uh, a lot of stories with that. Uh, something that I took from that that was fascinating to me was— the people that decided to stay and ride the storm out versus evacuate—how um, that decision could impact your community in a negative way. If you can't, you know, take care of yourself, which the people that uh, were discussed and told to us—they were, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe a little bit elderly. I, I don't—I mm-hmm. didn't meet them. It just—it didn't sound like they were quite capable of taking care of themselves, but they wanted to remain in their home. It's a very personal decision. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to, um, you know, judge or anything, but. After the storm was done, they were taking a lot of resources and slowing down the progress of the rest of the community to try to rebuild. And uh, I thought that that was, uh, you know, another step in the in the process of deciding should you evacuate, should you not. Hey, you know, we could be a hindrance to uh, to our neighbors.
0: Well, not only that, you have the issue of uh, you can have supplies, right? You can have food and water to take care of yourself, but they lost communications, hmm. so there were no cell phones in the lower florida keys in the middle and lower florida keys after irma so you put yourself in a situation you know people these days can't really imagine not being able to call for help or to communicate with their family and that's a huge issue and there's no reason to think that uh anywhere in the hurricane zone with a bad hurricane hitting in the in the wrong place that you wouldn't lose communications even if you had supplies Mm -hmm. and and, uh, And the facility to to take care of yourself. So it's a big deal.
1: Here's a question I I should have asked Marty while he was on. He was talking about the workforce housing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, affordable housing for people to to work in the lower keys is do people that had lost their home uh, and maybe they, you know, life will never be the same again? They can't rebuild what they had pre Irma. Do you know if they're going to have access to the affordable housing? That's the plan. That's the
0: idea. It's a very, very tough problem because somebody's got to actually build that, yeah. and you got to be able to afford to build it but and rent it out on, in some fashion to people that used to live in mobile homes, small mobile homes in some cases, live in the avenues there on Big Pine Key, and this is not a wealthy area, but it was a lifestyle, and, yeah. and Irma essentially uh, wipe that uh, uh, that lifestyle uh, away. so there, there's a lot to learn and uh, they're learning it in the keys and they're trying new ideas. and uh, I think that's that's terrific because as long as I've been in South Florida now thirty five years, we've been talking about you know the challenges of of uh, living in the keys. So a little bit of a, a stat about the this hurricane season because we had these two, you mentioned earlier, Luke, these two, Hurricane spin-up in July, Yeah, pretty darn unusual uh, situation. And, and both of them were uh, very freaky. One was a um, barrel that formed way far east, by far in terms of storms moving from east to west across the tropics. By far the farthest east a hurricane ever formed that early in the year. And then you had this Category 2. Chris became a Category 2 way off the the uh, northeast coast very, very unusual. So it raises the question: When well, we've had these kinds of storms in the past, what happened to the the hurricane season? You know, is there anything we can say? And the answer is no, not really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, th- so uh, just as as an example, that there have been four times since 1950 that that uh, we had that happen to have uh, at least two storms in in uh, July. And uh, two of those times, we ended up with a pretty busy and dynamic season. Other times we ended up with a season that, that really didn't generate anything. So
1: So we could still have way. a, uh, even though this is a, an a, it's an active start, no doubt, um, it could still be overall a quiet season. Is that uh, There's a chance of that? We just don't know. There's not a signal. Well, the, I guess a better way to phrase that is just because we've had an active season so far doesn't mean it's going to remain active through the rest of the season necessarily.
0: Yes, as we talked about last week, both of those storms were kind of freaky storms and really not symptomatic of of the overall uh, weather pattern. And let me remind you, this podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Visit them at miccosukee.com. So I have a a question. This isn't fair to ask you because you're kind of a newbie here. But uh, for our friends in in, uh, Hurricane Land that are and in podcast land, I guess, that are not uh, newbies to southeast Florida, uh, ask yourself this question. When was the last time a Category 3 or higher storm hit Miami? When was the last time a Category 3 or higher storm hit Miami? People think, you know, we've had a relatively large number of hurricanes here, right? This is the hurricane capital more times than any other City along the hurricane coast is the eye of a storm come right over downtown Miami. Seven times in the first seven decades of the 20th century, the eye of the storm came right over downtown Miami. And a lot of those storms throughout the years were quite strong. I mean, the m- most famous being in 1926, the Great Miami Hurricane, uh, which you could talk about for days and days. But the last time for a category three and above storm, came over downtown, was in 1950. And that was Hurricane King. It was a long, long time ago. And the main point is that all of these hurricanes that people remember that are alive today, because not that many people were old enough in 1950 to remember it in Miami. It was was, uh, a different kind of city then. But all these hurricanes that people remember, none of them were what we call major hurricanes or category three and above. And 80, 85 percent of the damage is done by these major hurricanes. So it's just a really important thing, I think, to understand about hurricanes here.
1: Yeah, a lot of people would probably say, well, what about Andrew? But the eye was further south. So you're saying the center of circulation. And wasn't there one right before the 1950? Wasn't there one in the late 40s as well? Uh, not that went over
0: downtown Miami. There was one that went over just north of Fort Lauderdale in 47. Okay. Category four. Yeah. There was a category four uh, that hit essentially where, uh, Andrew hit in uh, South Dade in 45. There was a category four that hit Monroe County and came across the state in 48. In fact, two storms came across the state in 48. And there was a category four that hit uh, West Palm Beach in 49, uh, um, and then 1950, the Category Four came right up US1. There was no I95 at the time. If I95 had been there, it would have been right up 95. And it was such a small hurricane that uh, only parts of Dade got. It was it was like a tornado that went right up mm. I95, but it went right over downtown. That was my
1: follow-up question. If it was a you know a Cat Four going right up you know down the middle chunk of Miami and you know passing as a direct hit as a major hurricane, how come? We've maybe forgotten about it. You don't hear much about Hurricane King unless you, you know, get into your almanac and start. <laughs> Brian Norcross wrote one, by the way. You ought to pick up his book. It's great. Um, but uh, but a really small one. You know, th- th- we're, we're talking a lot about these small hurricanes. You know, we, we just had the interesting thing with Barrel, where it doesn't really play by the rules. You had this uh, 1950 Hurricane King and 35. 35 was a small hurricane as well. well can you tell me a little bit about how... What what was the thirty five hurricane like? It was this ultra
0: intense, beyond belief storm, uh, and it was it was like Andrew except a notch uh, stronger. Mm. The, if you look at the the pictures and the reports of what happened to people, I mean, people had uh, people that died had skin sand blasted off them. No kidding. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was beyond imagination. Well, the, the miracle of the 35 hurricane is that as many people survived as did there in the in the heart of the keys, the Matagamba, Alamarada, uh, essentially Alamarada and mm-hmm. the key immediately south of of Alamarada, uh, which is where the, the World War One veterans were building the highway and their camp was on the key south of uh isla morata and and the train was trying to get there and the train uh didn't make it past isla morata when the storm surge came in and knocked the train off the track and and uh, and that was it and so the, the veterans that were stuck on that that uh windley key i guess or that's the lower matakamba key uh, uh didn't have a chance so but but people survived in all variety of ways uh there are a couple of really good books out uh, i was talking to uh, willie dry the other day who wrote a fantastic book called storm of the century about the 35 hurricane and he's going to update that uh next year he'll have a new version of it uh, coming out next year i wrote a little blurb for him because it was a uh, a, a fantastic book. So talk about books. So, uh, I recommend that one. Yeah. To, because understanding that storm, that's the most important hurricane of all hurricanes. The understanding that, uh, it's like understanding Andrew because it, trying to figure out if you, wherever you are on the coast, if s- a storm that looks like a minor storm and looks like it's going somewhere else suddenly turns into a top-end Ultra extreme drive wood through concrete kind of storm in the last 24 36 hours before landfall. How do you deal with that? You know, how do you deal with that as a community? How do do, do we deal with that as individuals? That's uh 35 storm and and Andrew are examples Mm -hmm. of that kind of storm. It's Mm -hmm. how how do we deal with that as a television station? How do we communicate that? Right? Yeah, that's
1: that's an incredible challenge. Yeah.
0: So anyway, that's that's um, you know that's one of the very uh, difficult things to think about. So anyway, that's um, that's uh, you know one of the things we 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 should talk about because you talked about the storm surge and do people understand storm surge? Uh, and uh, uh, what what's your sense? You've you've been in storm surge land here for about a year and a half now, going on two Mm -hmm, years, right? Yeah. Um, Do you you think there's an understanding of when when they say that there's a storm surge
1: threat, what that means? Mm, Vague, not not really, no. Uh, I think people understand the concept that, hey, the waters are going to rise. But it's difficult to communicate because, you know, uh, what does four feet of storm surge really mean, Mm -hmm. you know, or six feet or eight feet or whatever it is? Um, and then the forget about the complications of trying to forecast where the worst of the storm surge will be We really can't do that we can give that you know kind of worst case scenario or uh, a highly um, you know what the higher impact forecast might be so uh, it's a very difficult thing to to communicate even from my end so it's got to be difficult for people to understand exactly what the threat is
0: yeah if you've ever spent much time in the ocean, and i grew up at the beach so I, I kind of experienced this in fact i remember being in the ocean which these days people would be horrified by but i was in the ocean with hurricane betsy offshore and the amount of energy Wait, in what? the ocean you were in. i was out surfing and with hurricane <laughs> betsy <laughs> offshore and and it was uh, that's a story for another day but but oh it yeah. was Pocket that. but the thing is that if if you are in the ocean not to be a hurricane offshore with a storm offshore you feel the power of the water and i'm not talking about with the storm coming ashore and driving that ocean over the land but you feel it and that's the power of storm surge it's the power of the water I, i've been in the ocean where you can't stand because the undertow pulls your feet out mm-hmm. from under you that's the power of storm surge so that's why it's uh, such a threat so anyway we'll talk a lot more about storm surge here on the podcast uh, coming up. If you've got a question you'd like us to address, uh, send it to us, please. Weatherpod at WPLG.com is the email address, weatherpod at WPLG.com. So that's our podcast uh, for this week. I want to thank once again our friends at the Miccosukee Tribe, and uh, please visit them at Miccosukee.com. Check out all the things they're doing here in the Miami area and in South Florida. So, for Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross here at podcast headquarters at Local 10 WPLG in Miami. And we'll see you again here next week. Have a good week.